The views and opinions expressed by hosts and guests do not necessarily reflect the views of the Global Liberty Alliance, its network, sponsors, donors, or broadcast platforms. The Global Liberty Alliance provides this podcast for informational purposes. Freedom of speech is a fundamental right and essential for free societies to prosper. Thank you for listening and supporting the mission of the Global Liberty Alliance, dedicated to strengthening and defending fundamental individual rights, free markets, and the rule of law. This is Jason Poblet with the Global Liberty Alliance, and welcome to another podcast. Thank you for joining us again. We're coming to you from Alexandria, Virginia, as usual. We're right across the river from Washington, D.C., in the great Commonwealth of Virginia. Uh, Thank you all for listening, and thank you all, first and foremost, for sending us uh, the questions. We promise that we're preparing a special uh, segment in the near future, responding to your questions, and if you want us to broadcast your question, you can go ahead and record your questions on the Anchor app and they will be uploaded or you can email them to us and we will read them and either I or someone on the team will answer them. So today we have a special guest. I think she's in New York, uh, Caitlin Thomas. She's a New York attorney, international lawyer, uh, been involved with uh, international disputes for a long time and on on an issue that we're going to talk about uh, and she works on a lot of issues, but on this one in particular, I was introduced to it back in the 1990s when I first traveled to Africa at the end of the Cold War and spent time in uh, the Western Sahara region. I didn't meet her there, but uh, we met later. Uh, she was a, at the time, I think, the legal affairs officer, and she was in charge of, of the, the legal part of the United Nations mission for the referendum on the Western Sahara um, in Urso. It was a UN, is a UN peacekeeping mission. And uh, we're glad to have her here because we're going to talk not only about law, but unfortunately, uh, very recently, there's been potentially an outbreak again uh, into war or some type of a conflict, uh, the scope of which I guess we, we don't know yet. But we'll jump into that in a minute. But first of all, welcome, Caitlin. How are you? Thank you for inviting me. I'm very well. Great. You know, Caitlin, um, before we jump into the subject matter, let's talk a little bit about you. You graduated from Stanford and you've been practicing law for many, many years in international law. Uh, how did you, because some of the people who listen to this are law students and people considering careers in this space. How did you come, you know, how did you get that great job as legal affairs officer for the UN? And you've stayed involved with it ever since. So. It must, it must be a combination of passion for the law, the issues, but also uh, uh, for the, the, the struggle of, of, of the folks in the Western Sahara. So to share a little bit about that, how'd you come to law and how'd you get involved with this project? Well, um, I was always interested in being um, an international lawyer. Unfortunately, when I graduated from Stanford, there weren't very many opportunities available in this field. Um, so for many years, I had to do other things, but I decided, uh, actually what happened is I was invited to go to China, um, by the Chinese government to help them reform their laws, 
and I got that invitation because I helped put together um, uh, the uh, Asia Foundation's uh, office in Washington, D.C., and got to know a lot of the Chinese officials. This was a long time ago, back in the early 80s. And I stayed in China doing this and being a professor at the university in China for four years. Um, and after that, I was invited uh, to go and to teach at um, the oh. University of Cambridge in England uh, by Ellie Lauderpack, who is the head of the Lauderpack Research Center in International Law because of the work that I did in China. So I was there for um, a year, and then um, I became very interested in his field, which was the, the resolution of disputes before international tribunals. And that resulted in an invitation from the International uh, um, Chamber of Commerce Court of International Arbitration in Paris to be a consultant for them. So I went to Paris. And I worked for the ICC for several years. Um, and while I was there, I worked for international law firms on international arbitration matters to get to know about the uh, civil law concepts as well as the mm. uh, common law concepts of law and became a member of the Paris Bar. Okay. So this was a very circuitous way of getting involved in international law. <laughs> While I was in Paris, um, I was contacted uh, in 1994 by the State Department, um, who asked me whether I wanted to be involved as head of the legal office for a UN peacekeeping mission in the Sahara Desert. Well, um, up to that time, I had been only involved in commercial type disputes, and I thought it would be very interesting to get involved in this kind of public interest type of dispute. So I said yes, and um, I, ex I accepted the position, um, but I knew nothing about the issue of Western Sahara when I accepted it. So I started to do some research, and I found that the history of this dispute was rather interesting. Apparently, uh, Western Sahara had been um, a colony of Spain during the years in which Africa was colonized by the Western powers. And in 1974, Spain finally decided to allow the people to have a referendum to determine their future. And uh, the plans went forward to have this referendum until Morocco and Mauritania interceded and said that they had claims to the territory based upon the alleged ties that the territory had to the Sultan of Morocco and Mauritania in the pre-colonial days. So they asked the UN to halt the referendum process so that they could place their claims before the International Court of Justice which they did, and in 1975, the International Court of Justice ruled that they had no claims of sovereignty over this territory, that their contacts with the people in the territory were sporadic at best, and did not, they didn't display the continuity of uh, contacts and the depth of contacts that would lead to having sovereignty over the, the territory, especially in light of the rights of the people under international law 
to self-determination. However, despite the fact that the International Court of Justice ruled against them, both Morocco and Mauritania decided to invade the colony. And they did so in 1975. And this sparked a 16 year war between them and the inhabitants of the region led by a political group called the Polisario. Now, everyone thought at the time, apparently, that this, this group of basically nomads um, yeah. would not be able to hold off the Mauritanian and Moroccan uh, forces for long, but they were unpleasantly surprised by the fact that they not only uh, were able to withstand the efforts of Mauritania and Morocco, even though they were both uh, supported by both France and the United States, as well as, the, as Saudi Arabia, um, but they were able to force Mauritania out of the conflict in 1979. So from 1980 onwards, the fight was between the Polisario and Morocco. Well, Morocco tried everything to, um, to beat back the Polisario and to force them to surrender, but nothing worked. The mm. latest thing that they did, and the most effective thing they did, was actually build a wall throughout Western Sahara, the second largest wall, man-made wall in the world, mm -hmm. second only to the, the Great Wall of China, which you can see from space yeah. If you're in space, uh, looking mm -hmm. down in, in Western mm -hmm. Sahara to this day, um, and surrounded by the largest uh, concentration of landmines in the world. About um, 80 million, right? Or how many yeah, of them? Yeah, yeah a, a huge number. number that they're only now beginning to make a dent in, in removing. Um, so in any event, uh, they were able to somewhat turn back the uh, Polisario incursions, but they were never able to really defeat Polisario. And this dispute then became something that attracted the attention of uh, Paris de Cueda, when he was Secretary General of the United Nations. And in 1989, he started negotiations with the parties to try to convince them to have a ceasefire and to have the issue of sovereignty over the territory determined by a referendum. Finally, the parties agreed to this. And in 1990, um, a plan called the Settlement Plan was created by the United Nations under which um, a group of UN officials backed by African Union officials uh, would lead a, a team to uh, construct a referendum for self-determination whereby the Sarawis, the indigenous people of Western Sahara, would be able to choose between being independent or part of Morocco. And the voters list would com be comprised of all the people who were on a Spanish census taken of the population in 1974. That is when I entered the picture. I was asked in 1994 uh, to go down and to head up the legal office uh, at Minerso in the field to conduct this referendum. So tell us a little, before we jump into that, uh, yes. because this is, this is a, a phenomenal story. And before we jump to, the, to your work in the Sahara, if any law students listening to this, what would be your one piece of advice if they wanted to have this type of a career? 
Well, I think that things have progressed quite a bit since the time that I was a law student in terms of the availability of various avenues uh, of law practice for law students in general and particularly women. Back mm. in the old days, um, the idea of a woman being involved in international law um, was unheard of practically. Um, when I joined Minerso, and that wasn't that long ago, I was one of the highest ranked women in all peacekeeping operations. Wow. And uh, so there weren't very many opportunities. Yeah, it's funny, you, you, you say the old days, but it's, it's, it's not that really that far, you know, it's not that long ago, but you're right, you broke a lot of, uh, a lot of barriers. And frankly, it sounds like you did it on your own. You charted your own path and you went through the commercial side and were able to craft uh, uh, a roadmap that put you there. And also international law practice has evolved as well quite a bit since then, but it sounds like you kind of carved your own niche and have um, opened the path to other people. Well, as I said, my, my path is rather unique and I, I hope that people won't have to go through that in order to have a career mm. in international law today because there are a lot of opportunities now. Um, there are a lot of NGOs that deal with um, international law issues that weren't there back in, in the old days when I was a law student. Um, there's a lot more uh, opportunity at the United Nations system to get involved in international law issues. There, the State Department and even the other um, bureaus of the United States government that deal with international law issues, uh, they are more open now to, to uh, having students um, concentrate solely on international law rather than uh, have to have a, 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 another type of practice before they get involved in international law. I think you have to remember that back uh, when I graduated from law school, um, the proportion of U.S. commerce that was really international in character was minute. Mm. It's difficult for people to believe that today. Yeah. Yeah. But back in those days, um, most of the U.S. GNP was domestic. And so there weren't any real opportunities out there, even in the commercial area, to, to practice international law. Today, that's just the opposite. Practically everything, everything is international. In fact, the, the leading way to handle international commercial disputes now is not through courts, but through international arbitration. Arbitration, yeah. That's yeah, right. and right. uh, so, I mean, everything has changed. So um, I don't think that students today have to do what I did and have to go through the kind of uh, experience that I went through. I think that uh, they, can, they can chart an easier course uh, with the other opportunities that are out there. Great. Well, well, Caitlin Thomas, we're gonna take our first break. Uh, when we come back, we're gonna pick up uh, where you left off there with your uh, arrival in, in the Sahara. And as a little side note, believe it or not, I began as a, um, my route was circuitous, uh, much less than yours, but I started this out as a sanctions lawyer. And uh, even though I had always done some form of human rights work and, and defense work, uh, it came later. Uh, it, it kind of uh, had a not as exciting a trajectory as yours going through Europe and Paris and the ICC and your work in China, but it, it came, I was, I came from the transactional world uh, where I, I'd like to get your views toward the end about 
the use of sanctions in places like the Sahara. There hasn't been a lot of sanctions in position, frankly, uh, which I find quite remarkable in the Sahara case. We can talk about that later. But when we come back, we're going to continue our conversation with Caitlin Thomas, an international lawyer about the Western Sahara. Hello, fellow Liberty Warriors. If you haven't heard about Anchor, it is the easiest way uh, to make a podcast. It's free uh, for starters. There's also uh, an awesome creation tool. If you don't want to hire a producer right away, you can record and edit your podcast right from your phone, right from your computer, anywhere you are, at any time. It's uh, distributed for you, so that's really important. Once you record this, you need to get it to the right platform. They will do that for you, including on Spotify, Apple Podcast, and many, many more. You can also make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. It's everything you need to make a podcast. It's all in one place. It's very easy to use. So give Anchor a try. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. That's anchor.fm to get started. All right, Caitlin, before we took the break and I interrupted you, we were chatting about your arrival in the Sahara and the work that you did with Minurso, that UN peacekeeping mission. Um, you know, how was that? Uh, you know, you think about lawyering and most people think, you know, these lawyers to just sit at a desk and uh, work all day and uh, are in, behind some office. But I know your experience was a little different in the Sahara. How, how did that go? It was very different. I spent all my time negotiating between the parties on every every kind of uh, legal and procedural aspect mm. of, of the referendum. Um, and I noticed from the beginning that there were problems with the way Minersa was set up and the UN procedure for, for, for conducting this referendum. For one thing, um, instead of the UN going out and interviewing potential applicants, all the applicants were submitted through the parties. Mm. In fact, uh, the UN personnel had no direct contact with potential applicants in the Moroccan controlled portion of the territory. Uh, we had no way of uh, discussing anything with them. Wow. All of the applications from them came through the Moroccans. Um, they were not able to come even to, to get information from us at our headquarters because there were security guards posted all around preventing anyone from coming in. Mm -hmm. And the Moroccans were constantly telling people that the referendum was only a referendum, referendum to confirm a Moroccans uh, sovereignty over the territory. So they were given disinformation about mm -hmm. what, what we were there to do. Um, we didn't take, find take, the same. Take, can I ask you a question about yes. that? Uh, yes. So, so when someone, you know, we, we've met with folks in Latin America where we've had conversations about people, um, you know, they ask us all, lawyers ask us all the time. And in fact, I had one lawyer from a certain country who was asking us, you know, if the UN had been around when America was fighting its war of independence, you guys may not even exist. 
And the first thought that went to my mind was Minurso. I don't know why, but uh, at the time, it just I wasn't going to entertain it with the lawyer asking me the question. But this process uh, that it was a war. So, the, so to, to the layman, re, look, looking at this from the outside, there was a war. They fought for 16 years. These are people that were had a unique identity. Uh, they were in the desert. They, they uh, I think they're 99.9% Muslim. So it's, it's a, a people who even had organized into groups and governments and what have you that came later. They wanted to be free. They, it, it was their land. They fought for it. There was a ceasefire. There's supposed to be a referendum. What happened, do you think? in that, because you're, you're talking about a very important phase and people maybe from the outside wondering why has it taken so long? Well, I think that the, the United Nations, unfortunately, was bowing to pressure to conduct the referendum in a way that really just didn't make any sense. Hmm. Um, there was too much pressure being placed on them by Morocco and Moroccan allies. Of course, they were in a difficult position because Morocco had physical control of the territory. It wasn't supposed to be that way. According to the original settlement plan, uh, the UN was supposed to take control over the territory and not Morocco, and then conduct the referendum. But th this period never took place. And so uh, the UN personnel were sent into Moroccan controlled territory to conduct a referendum uh, under Moroccan control. And uh, I don't know why, to tell you the truth, the UN acquiesced in having the applications be submitted by the parties rather than go out and, and interview the people themselves. Mm. That was a disastrous uh, decision, as far as I'm concerned. Um, and it made it very difficult for us to work because we were never sure that we were getting all the applicants that right. were out there who wanted to apply. Would, would, and, they view you, would they view you as the um, as the Moroccans and the Polisario? Like, you're in the middle of all this, so would they view you as, here's the American lawyer telling us what to do? or Because or, it must be a really tense position for a lawyer to be in, in a situation like that. You mean the Sahrawis or the Moroccans? The Moroccans, I mean, yeah, would they? Would oh, they well, the, the Moroccans uh, had a very interesting viewpoint of the whole thing. Um, the Moroccans thought that since they believed they were staunch allies of the United States, that they mm. could trust any American to be on their side. Mm. So they weren't negative towards me at the beginning. In fact, they weren't even they were somewhat dismissive of me and my attempts to make sure that the referendum was free and fair um, throughout the entire process because they didn't think that I would have any effect. Um, wow. They were so sure. In fact, the, um, the head negotiator for the Moroccans uh, told me at one point that he had the United States government in his pocket, so to speak. <laughs> All right. I mean, uh, they were so convinced that they had the backing of the United States that they just laughed at anything that anyone tried to do hmm. to, um, to thwart their, their plans. And from the beginning, um, not only was there a problem with the application process being disastrous, uh, but the Moroccans tried desperately to pad the voters list. <laughs> in, 
and uh, in ways that were in almost terribly obvious to anyone out there. Um, we had uh, the, the interview sessions were conducted by uh, elders uh, from appointed by both Moroccans and, and the Polisario to conduct interviews uh, with the uh, UN personnel being there present and listening in on it. Um, and uh, very often the elder that was appointed by Morocco would come to UN officials afterwards and say, you shouldn't listen to anything I say because I'm being forced to say this by the Moroccans. And I, I mean, so uh, we had a lot of evidence that this was going on and that, um, that we couldn't trust a lot of the testimony that was being given by the elders appointed by Morocco. Um, and so in cases in which the applicants didn't have uh, evidence, written evidence, uh, affirming their identity and affirming that they were they did have they didn't meet the criteria for eligibility. By the way, the criteria that that we we judge people by were the criteria that were that that were proposed uh, by uh, Morocco itself. So um, there was no question that we were doing something that they didn't agree to. They agreed to have these various criteria that we um, that we judge people by um, applied, and that is exactly what we did. Um, but even in doing that, uh, they, they tried to, to get as many people on the voters list as possible who were really just not eligible according to their own agreed criteria. So what happened is, um, I won't go into the, the rather torrid history of, of these, these uh, stop and go process that we went through for a number of years, but finally in 1999, uh, we published the, the voters list and Morocco was very shocked to find that we had indeed rejected a number, a majority of the applicants that they had put forth. Hmm. Um, so what they did as a reaction, uh, initially they thought they'd appeal all of these decisions, but that was put down by the Security Council because it would have taken too long to go through another round of, of interviews. And then when they found that that wouldn't happen, they just decided to pull out of the process entirely. Yeah. So it's been in limbo ever since with the Moroccans now uh, proposing that they would be willing to make Western Sahara an autonomous region within Morocco, but that's it. They would not agree to anything that might possibly lead to the independence of the colony. Let me ask you a question. A, a little, there was a paper that we're going to provide a link for uh, that was prepared for the New York Bar. You were one of the co-authors of this uh, of this document. So highly recommended. It's a good legal outline and overview of a lot of different su subset of issues that we're not even going to have time to touch, uh, touch upon today. But there's something in there that I wanted to ask you about, that there's this inconsistency you wrote between the principle of self-determination under international law and the uh, merely asking parties uh, you know, on the independence option or asking the parties to proceed with discussions on a political solution with no preconditions. And, and you go into that in a lot of detail, of course, in the paper, but can you give us just a little bit of context on what, what, what was meant by that? Well, Morocco has been saying that its position was take it or leave it. 
Mm. Right? Either we have uh, you you accept our autonomy proposal, or we're just going to keep the status quo. We're not going to allow you to have an option of independence. And that is fundamentally against the principle of self-determination mm -hmm. as it has always been defined and applied by the UN and uh, experts throughout the time that has been considered a legal right. I mean, if you take one of the options that the people have off the table, you say you can't be independent, but we'll allow you to be um, a state within the country. We'll allow you this, but we're not going to allow you to be independent. So that's not self-determination under international law. And that's what that was about. And when we discussed that issue. What's the, the Moroccans, what's their general uh, position on the International Court of Justice decision back of 1974? Well, um, we have had, <laughs> I don't want to go into this because we'll get, it'll get too political, but uh, <laughs> We like politics, but we 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 we, 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 we don't have to get into politics today, though. But generally speaking, I guess what what has been their position with on the ICJ decision? They lied about it. <laughs> they lied about it. They, no, I'm serious. The, the, the first thing that King Hassan II did when he got the the ruling is he had a press conference. When, she, when he declared to the nation that the ICJ had ruled in their favor. Right. Mm. And to this day, I believe that there are a number of Moroccans out there who really believe that the decision of the International Court of Justice ruled in favor of Morocco. And in fact, if you see some of the writings of some of the Moroccan ex, so-called experts on Western Sahara, they, they quote some of the passages of the decision in which the court rightly pointed to some ties that existed between Morocco and some of the tribes and some of the elders during some period of time in Western Sahara. They point to that and they leave out the ultimate conclusion of the court that there weren't sufficient ties of a continuous and, and strong nature to, to to assert sovereignty over the territory. So um, to this day, uh, Morocco denies what uh, a, a clear reading of the court's decision would tell anyone who practices law or any civilian out there that the court denied their claims. Before we take the next break, uh, what is the general humanitarian situation? We haven't talked much about the Sahrawi and, and their plight, because it's frankly quite grim when you put in context how these peoples have lived. So for the benefit of the people who don't know much about Western Sahara, what's the humanitarian aspect? What are the problems here that I guess we should be focusing on that we don't? Are you more interested in what's going on in the Moroccan occupied portion of Western Sahara or in the Tindouf camps? It'd be good to explain both of them briefly to our listeners and most people won't know that, that the difference, but I think there, there's some nuances with both that are important for people to know about. Well, first of all, I need to explain what the Tindouf camps are. Right. Uh, when the war started uh, between Morocco uh, and the Polisario, um, about half the civilian population of Western Sahara fleed the cities. And initially they established camps 
in the interior part of Western Sahara. But then they were bombed by Morocco. And when this happened, um, uh, the Algerian president, Boumedien, uh, offered them refuge in Algeria. So all of the civilians that had fled the cities uh, found, went to a place called Tinduf in Algeria, where they established uh, camps. And they are there to this day in the, the desert of Algeria in Tinduf. Now, uh, what they did is they did several remarkable things. First of all, um, the women, uh, and for most of the fighting, the men were out fighting. They weren't in Algeria, they were in Western Sahara. And it was the women who controlled the camps. The women uh, set up uh, a camp that was by all means, one of the best run refugee camps in the world. Not only that, but they established a school system where by the time Minerso was set up, they had achieved roughly a 95% literacy rate among women in the camps. Now, this is unheard of in most Muslim countries, especially in North Africa. And they did so themselves without any help from any outside sources. So um, the, the humanitarian situation in the camps is that they, they are in the middle of the desert. It is, it is hard. They are facing hardship because of that, but they've been able to organize themselves superbly and um, have you know, a, a rather cohesive society there. And I might add a democratic type society there. Right. In fact, one of the things that I was struck by um, when I got involved in this issue is the fact that I had been led to believe that the Polisario wanted to establish a kind of a Marxist dictatorship. And that was far from the truth. What they actually wanted to establish was a democracy that was very similar to the United States or at the most, the socialism as practiced in Sweden. But They've been able to establish themselves uh, and their their laws and their system of government, um, and and do so in a rather progressive manner in the camps. Yes, it's, it's quite tolerant. Too, it's it's quite tolerant too to um, like non-Muslims also. They're a lot, they're very welcoming people. So they they will bring in even Christians if they wanted to. The people, in fact, there are Christians living among them. Right. They, yeah. they practice a very moderate form of Islam that mm -hmm. is very much in line with the way it, it is practiced in Berber communities rather than uh, the kind of um, authoritarian ways that it's, it's, it's applied in some other parts of the world. Right. right. Um, now, on the other hand, what has happened in the Moroccan occupied areas of Western Sahara has been a continued repression of the people. Um, initially, when Morocco invaded, the people who remained were, uh, were, were very badly treated. There were lots of reports of people just disappearing and never, never to be seen again, who spoke out against the Moroccan occupation. And in fact, the bones of some of these people were recently found or found, I guess, about 20 years ago in the desert. And for the first time, Morocco had to admit that, yes, this did occur. Um, and to this day, 
if people speak out against the Moroccan occupation or speak out in favor of independence, they are routinely beaten, they are routinely put, put in jail, and they are routinely um, not allowed to congregate and form societies or express their opinion. The press is non-existent. Correct. Yeah. Uh, mm -hmm. Free press doesn't exist in occupied Western Sahara. Um, and so uh, it, it is a very repressive society. And you can find out any information you want about this. It's been very carefully chronicled well documented, by, yeah. by mm -hmm. Human Rights Watch throughout all these years. Yeah. Well, um, we're, this is, this is uh, we're coming up against another break. So we'll pick up here uh, with Caitlin Thomas, international lawyer, but on the Western Sahara issue. We'll also talk a little bit about the Baker plan and what, what is that? What does it mean? and talk a, a little bit more about uh, what can be done and some recent events. And finally, a, a book that's been recently published that Caitlin has some insight to called The Stealing of the Sahara. We'll be right back. Back with Caitlin Thomas, international lawyer in New York, uh, talking about the Western Sahara. Uh, before we broke, Caitlin, we were talking a little bit about the human rights situation, and we encourage our listeners, and we'll provide links to that, to the various human rights reports published by uh, different organizations about the violation of fundamental rights in the occupied territory. And uh, I think you'll find them quite informative. And it's interesting that something that you hear a lot here in Washington when you try to raise that issue about violation of fundamental rights and human rights abuses in the Sahara. And I've, it's happened to me uh, every now and then I'll mention it. And really within minutes, people come out of the woodwork on social media and start attacking you and accusing you of being propagandist for the Algerians, which is, I'll take, by the way, I take, we take no money from anybody. We do this because the organization believes in it and, and, and believes in self-determination. Um, why is the visceral reaction? It's quite telling. Uh, but why do you think it happens? Because they do it with impunity. They just will come out and say all sorts of things. In fact, to this day, they still call earlier in the, in the program, you were mentioning how the Moroccans were and other people were saying, oh, the Polisario were going to be these hardline Marxists. That was during the Cold War. Now, after 9-11, there was a time when they were being called uh, terrorists, that they were involved with uh, ISIS in North Africa, and they were helping uh, spread terrorism in, in, in North Africa. It's a propaganda campaign, baseless, by the way. It's been shot down multiple times. And if they were such an organization, I can guarantee you the U.S. government would you designate them a foreign terrorist organization, which they've never done. But it's, it's quite aggressive and quite well organized. Why do you think that is? What, what, what is it that Morocco fears? Well, Morocco fears that, you know, the international law and justice is on the side of having a referendum and having the people have their right to determine their future. And they know very well that they would want independence in that case. Mm -hmm. And uh, so Morocco is is very much uh, afraid of anything that might uh, encourage people to support them in this effort. Um, I should mention that this issue of Western Sahara is considered 
one of the, if not the most important issues in Morocco today. Mm. Um, it used to be that, uh, that it was an issue that was um, adopted by King Hassan back in the 70s and the 80s as a way to circumvent the attacks of the opposition party and the Istakalians who uh, had advocated uh, that Morocco reclaim all the lands that had that belonged to Morocco back in the Sultan's days. And this was a way that they could steal the thunder from the opposition groups. But now it has become such so entrenched in the foreign policy of Morocco that uh, I think the Moroccan regime fears that if they ever backtrack on this, or if they ever seem to, to lose this issue, uh, they may not remain in power that long. Um, so this is a very important issue for them. They spend millions of dollars each year on lobbyists to mm -hmm. lobby for their position, um, especially in the United States. Uh, oh yes, quite significant. Spring. Some of it, some, some of it, some of it probably paid Caitlin by unlawfully, let's say, acquired resources that belong to the people of the Western Sahara. Yes, of yeah. course. Yeah. And uh, and and in fact, I, I think uh, Morocco pays more to U.S. lobbyists than practically any other country out there. Um, and the and the only thing that they are interested in is Western Sahara. So they've got lawyers on their payroll, they've got lobbyists on their payroll, they've got people in think tanks, a number of people, rather prestigious people in prestigious think tanks who are blatantly pro-Moroccan. Mm. Um, I'm not sure that it's because they're getting paid, but they certainly are pro-Moroccan. Um, you know what's and, interesting about that, by the way, Caitlin, that it's, um... This issue here in Washington, as you know, is quite bipartisan. Uh, so you have this coalition of at least the pro uh, uh, the pro referendum groups. Like uh, we'll talk if you talk you know, a little bit about the Baker Plan in a minute, but uh, it touch upon what you're talking about the think tanks. Yeah, some of the the more elite think tanks will usually trend the Moroccan way, but then you have uh, out of nowhere, folks will, are shocked to learn that people like former National Security Advisor to the President John Bolton has been a longtime advocate of, of a referendum in the Sahara. Of course, he argues for the security, you know, security. There's a lot of benefits from stability and in North Africa, and having the referendum settled once and for all would help advance U.S. interests in the region. And then you have Democrats uh, who also uh, are staunch advocates of the referendum, and you have Senator Inhofe, and who's a Republican. So, uh, what do you attribute that to, and, and what is the Baker Plan? All right, well, first, um, I think that the dichotomy is between the, um, the very um, liberal Democrats on one hand and the very conservative Republicans on the other hand. That's right. And <laughs> That's right. The only issue that they really agree about is Western Sahara. That's right. And I think it, it shows a sort of convergence. Uh, if you really believe that in it, not in international law, because John Bolton doesn't believe in international law, but That's he right. does believe right. in, in the struggle of the legitimate struggle of people for independence who have, a, have rights to, to their land. 
Um, and that coincides with what liberal Democrats believe. Uh, so, I mean, it's the people in the middle who, who seem <laughs> not to be convinced one way or the other, or if anything, to be someone on the Moroccan side, because they just don't want to shake the apple tree, mm. you know? Uh, they're afraid of what might fall. So, um, so that, that is what explains it. Um, now, getting to the Baker plan, uh, Baker, James Baker was, apply, was appointed the special representative of the Secretary General back in 1997, um, at a time when there were lots of problems going on in the mission. And he uh, tried for several years to come up with some sort of plan that would both appease Morocco and satisfy the right to self-determination. And each one of these plans would, would allow for different population groups to vote, uh, different periods of time of autonomy before independence. He, he went through a number of permutations. None of them worked because at the end of the day, uh, Morocco was not going to, uh, was not willing to, uh, to go approve any kind of plan that might ultimately lead to independence for Western Sahara. And the Polisario would not approve any plan that would not possible, possibly lead to independence for Western Sahara. So he was at an impasse. Um, so he, he finally resigned in, in relative disgust over the matter. But he did say a few things that were rather interesting before he, he resigned and, and shortly afterwards. He said that in terms of international law and human rights, he thought that, uh, that the people of Western Sahara uh, had rights to have a referendum and that uh, he believed in a West uh, Sahrawi society. He believed that if they did have an independent Western Sahara, that it, it would be something that would be compatible with Western ideals. Mm. Um, so he, he sort of um, did not wish to toe the line that was being uh, pro uh, proclaimed by Morocco uh, during this period, um, but he wasn't able to fashion anything that Morocco would accept and that the Polisari would also accept. And since his departure, um, no one has come up with any kind of plan that the bo both of the parties were willing even to discuss, mm. let alone accept. As we, we're going to move into the last segment, so we have a few more minutes before we break. I wanted to introduce The Stealing of the Sahara. It's a book that you helped publish, and it's a fascinating read. I, I'm almost done with it, and it covers an interesting time frame. Can you tell us a little bit about the book and uh, where people can get a copy so we can provide them? a link to that? Well, I think that if they Google it um, on uh, the internet, they can see several different outlets where they can get it. Um, but what happened is I became very interested in the history of the war between Morocco and uh, the Polisario uh, because so many aspects of it were fascinating. Just the fact that this small group of essentially Bedouins mm. uh, who had no more than hunting rifles at the start of the war, um, were able to fend off the Moroccan army 
and the Mauritanian army who were being fed massive amounts of weapons and sophisticated surveillance equipment and planes and other things by the United States and France and funded uh, by millions of dollars by Saudi Arabia. And they were able to fend off this juggernaut mm -hmm. of, of Western powers for as long as they did. And how they managed to do that, I, I found it fascinating. And then, of course, what happened during the war, the, uh, the building of the berm, um, that's a fascinating story in itself. And some of the people who were involved, um, one of my favorite characters, and this is a real person, was a woman by the name of Sidemi. Mm. And she was a nurse, but she was also a fighter. And when, at one point, um, she manned a, a truck and went into the desert, dressed in men's clothes, went into the desert, <laughs> rescued the Algerian soldiers who were there helping to evacuate the civilian population at one of the early parts of the war. Um, and they didn't realize she was a woman until she came back and delivered them to delivered the camp. Them, yeah. <laughs> uh, and then from that point on, she went out and she fought with the, with the fighters. And oh. so she was both a she was both a nurse and a fighter at the and same it's a real, time. It's a real it's a real character then. It's a real person. Yes, <laughs> real person. that's awesome. <laughs> and some of the other people who were involved in this whole thing and and how uh, they the strategy and even how they overcame the berm. Because by the end of the war, by 1987, even though Morocco had built this huge berm uh, that was manned by soldiers all, of, all the way along its length and had um, all kinds of uh, landmines, et cetera, to keep up, they were, they were able to find ways to penetrate the berm and to go beyond <laughs> into Moroccan controlled territory. And, uh, and, and the way they were able to do this, um, is amazing. In fact, one of the ways in which they were able to do this, uh, I will tell you, is they had a strategy. Um, they would have people go uh, the whole entire length of the berm and create havoc so that the Moroccans never knew which part of the was berm they were going from. to attack. Yeah. And then they would have surprise attacks. And the Moroccans would, were, were becoming so demoralized by this, not knowing where they're going to be attacked and how they're going to be attacked, et cetera, that, um, that, that they were able to overcome their, their defenses uh, rather easily towards the end of the war. They, um, they, when, when I read that part of the book, it reminded me a little bit of the, um, the Minutemen uh, in the militias here in the United States in the Revolutionary War who were self-trained uh, pretty much the farmer army uh, that George Washington had to fight with, who would engage in all sorts of, at the time, uncivilized uh, <laughs> tactics to keep the British uh, on their toes. And uh, they, uh, it's quite a remarkable story. I think folks should read it. It's called The Stealing of the Sahara. And uh, we'll provide links for it at the, uh, at the end of the podcast uh, website. Uh, when we come back, we're going to wrap up the program. We're going to talk a little bit about what's happening there now and ask Caitlin, why should, and we, we do this on all our programs, Caitlin, we ask, why should Americans be focusing on this issue so far away? What, what, what's important here about rule of law, fundamental rights, and any parting thoughts you may have to our uh, budding law students who may be listening? We'll be right back.
Welcome back. We're here with Caitlin Thomas, international lawyer in New York, talking about the Western Sahara. Uh, about two weeks ago, um, roughly two weeks ago this Friday, maybe now on Monday coming up, uh, we record the show on Fridays. Uh, there was a altercation that's uh, in, in, in Africa uh, between the Moroccans and the Polisario. And it started off as, depending who you listen to, uh, Morocco says the Polisario were the aggressors. Uh, the Polisario would push back and say they were there peacefully. Uh, what's going on there now? And potentially, what you know, if this becomes a, a war, an outbreak of war, and I've heard experts use that term a lot this week, uh, what are the implications of that for the referendum, this whole process? I mean, essentially, the ceasefires uh, uh, it's no longer, it's not there anymore. Uh, and the Secretary General of the UN has made some statements on it. But uh, what do you see hap potentially happening here in the near term? And what does this mean for the referendum and the Polisario? Well, it's difficult to say because um, there has been a buildup of tension among particularly the Sarawi youth over at least the past 10 years. Uh, they've become increasingly frustrated over the fact that nothing has been done at the United Nations. They had this right to a referendum. Morocco just arbitrarily pulled out of it um, and is now trying to force something down their throats that they don't want. The UN doesn't seem to be willing to do anything to stop this. Uh, they don't seem to be getting any help from the United States or France or a, most of the Western countries. And this just seems to be going on and on and on with, with no end in sight. So the, the young people, the youth, are becoming very, very frustrated and have become very frustrated over the past few years. So when this incident sort of blew up, um, it, it really set up um, the stage for something that's been brewing for a long time. So that being the case, I'm not sure that this is just a kind of an incident that will be, that will quiet down and uh, someone will intervene and come up with some sort of solution and everything will go back to the status quo. I just don't see that happening. Um, I think that there's, there's too much pent up emotion uh, on the Sarawi side for that to happen. Now, that being said, will it, will it culminate in an all out war? Well, I guess that depends what you mean by war. Um, will there be tanks rolling into Casablanca? Um, I doubt it, I doubt it. Um, but in the past, the Polisario and the Sarawis have been very inventive in the ways in which they conducted war. Mm -hmm. During the 16-year war with Morocco, they managed to invade Morocco proper, and they went into Tantan and actually uh, released the, the Sahrawi prisoners and got uh, helped the civilian population escape Tantan and go into the camps. Um, and they were able to go deep into Moroccan territory. That's one of the reasons why Morocco, the uh, King Hassan was so worried about um, the Polisario and came running to the United States for additional help during those years because the, the Polisario were able to go as far up as uh, Tantan and even farther up. And he was afraid they would eventually get to Rabat. 
Um, they, they, their 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 fighting style has is legend, and they even the U.S. Army War College has done papers on this on how they've cleverly and adapted uh, tactics, modern warfare tactics, to advance their cause. So I wouldn't count them out if there were an outright big war again. Right. The whole concept of putting um, bazookas and uh, on the back of Land Rovers, etc., was something created by the Polisario, mm -hmm. and now that's sort of a staple in guerrilla desert warfare. Also, there's one major battle that took place at a place called Gulta Zamor, in which the Polisario downed five Moroccan jets right, yeah. uh, with sophisticated um, missiles that they were able to smuggle out of Libya and into the camps without anyone knowing they had it. Um, and they were able to, to defeat uh, the Moroccan army in this huge battle. And that battle, I have been told, is one of the textbook battles on how to conduct uh, uh, guerrilla desert warfare used by the US Army. Um, so yes, they, they are very inventive about how they conduct war. And uh, I, I wouldn't put it past them to be able to do a lot of things that will worry Morocco. That's right. Um, but what that would be, I can't predict at this point. Yeah. Uh, Caitlin, as we wrap up, we ask all our guests uh, in their own unique way, of course, because the topics we discuss on the show uh, run the gamut. But uh, on this particular one, given the times that we're living through, where there seems to be an inward looking foreign policy uh, for the United States, uh, why should Americans and American taxpayers uh, care about what's happening out there? And what aspect of what's happening as far then the legal part of this, uh, uh, what, it, what lessons are there in this for rule of law and fundamental rights? It's a two-part question. Well, the first part I can answer by saying that this is the one huge thorn in the side of of everything that goes on in Northwest Africa, right? This has been the thorn that has prevented the Maghreb from uh, joining and, uh, and being able to be more productive um, and to also be able to ally with the United States in countering terrorism in the rest of Africa. Mm -hmm. And um, so I, it's a very important part of geography for many reasons. And uh, the way this, this conflict will be handled will have repercussions throughout the entire area. So that's number one. Now, why should people care about this uh, from a, a law standpoint? Um, I think this issue of Western Sahara and how it has been handled raises the question of whether there is such a thing as international law. We all know that there is something called international law principles when it comes to commercial matters. But when it comes to things such as um, humanitarian law and right to self-determination and any of these other principles that international lawyers espouse and say, oh yes, they are, they are cornerstones of international <laughs> law, et cetera, I think this issue raises the question of whether this law actually exists, because it is, this is a situation in which the legal principles are very clear, very clear, 
the International Court of Justice ruled on it. Um, uh, every, uh, every learned um, professor of international law who has examined the subject say yes, in terms of uh, right to self-determination, uh, it's very clear uh, that, that the Sahrawis have this right and it should be exercised. In terms of the fact that Morocco agreed to a referendum and, and under international law norms, it sh should be held to abide by its agreement under international law. Um, any kind of uh, principle that we can talk about in international law um, would seem to uh, say that the Sahrawis have rights here that are not being respected. And so if the international community just ignores this, and if the international community of lawyers doesn't do something about this, if we can't enforce somehow principles of international law that we talk about so freely, mm -hmm. then is there such a thing as international law or should we just keep quiet about it and say it doesn't exist? Admit it doesn't exist. It's only politics, all right? If you have political allies and you've got an army and you've got economic clout, you can get what you want and forget about these rights, these so-called rights that we say exist under international law. That's, we're going to leave it there because I'm out of time, but it was an excellent summary. And Caitlin, I'm so happy you could spend some time with us today. I hope you'll consider coming back. Uh, I've learned a lot. I hope our listeners have learned a lot and budding law students, keep your questions coming. If you have any questions for Caitlin, you can email them. Uh, we'll put a link there or you can uh, record them and we will play them back and maybe she can even answer some of them if, if she has some time. So Caitlin, thank you very much for spending time with us today on the Global Liberty Alliance podcast. Is there anything else you want to add? No, I just thank you very much for allowing me to, uh, to talk about this issue, which is very important to me and to a lot of other people. Well, thank you for what you've done. Uh, the, 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 you've advanced uh, the cause of justice over decades on this issue and many others, and many other lawyers would have stepped aside, uh, but you have not. You have remained engaged. You speak a lot on this issue. You've written a lot on this issue. And before we let you go, is there any more uh, potential books in the works or papers that we should be aware of? Yes, I'm putting together a book um, with the publishers of IPJET, uh, which is the international platform for uh, jurors for uh, East Timor that put out books initially about the Eastern Timor situation and now are putting out books about Western Sahara. We're putting out another book on the legal issues involved with the Western Sahara dispute. There is already one that was published about 10 years ago. And this is going to be an update. And one of my articles, a very long article is going to appear in that and there will be other publications. Right. Well, I look forward to reading it. Caitlin, Thomas, thank you very much. Uh, have a good weekend. And for those listening, again, keep the questions coming. Hello, it's Jason with the Global Liberty Alliance. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. Before we wrap up the last segment, I want to just share with you two brief uh, announcements. First, thank you. Thank you for uh, your support, for your questions, for listening, for sending us so many suggestions for guests. 
and for our topics. We will continue to read them, and please keep them coming. So on behalf of Arthur, Cara, Mariana, Mauricio, Veronica, our network of lawyers and independent uh, you know, civil society leaders in the places we work, thank you for listening and for uh, expressing uh, the enthusiasm for some of the work that they are doing uh, in Latin America and hopefully soon in other places. Second, in order to expand our work, we need your support. So please consider investing. Uh, please consider uh, putting some of your uh, sweat equity if you want. We can put you to work. But we also need your money. We need your support. Consider investing. There's many ways to give. Uh, look and learn more about it at our website at www.globallibertyalliance.org. That's www.globallibertyalliance.org. You can click on the invest button and you can also check some of the work we're doing. Keep in mind, that's just a example of some of the work uh, we've done that we continue to do. And if you'd like to learn more, uh, please contact us. And let's get back to the show. Thank you very much.